so we're going back to Ephesians, our first sermon on the book of Ephesians this year. It's actually three months nearly since we were there last, so we do have a few threads to pick up. If you can turn now to Ephesians chapter 2, um, and I'm going to be reading the whole chapter because if we just plunge in at verse 14, which is our, our text for today, uh, and we don't look at what happened before, then we're going to risk losing the sense of it. So, here we go, starting in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So at the beginning of this section, Paul has reminded us of the desperate position we, and for that matter, all sinful humans were in. We were children of wrath. But he shows us too the merciful work of God in saving us through grace, making us alive together with Christ. Now friends, that right there is a eureka moment. That is a hallelujah moment because no matter how many times we hear that read, no matter how hot or cold the day, no matter whether we are tired or bored or hungry, if we are Christians, then this is always a moment to give thanks and praise to God for the gift of life that we did not deserve, that cost him so much, and yet that he went gladly ahead and gave Anyway, through the gracious provision of Christ, the sinful man is saved and reconciled to God. We can only say, 
Hallelujah. The richness of this passage is outstanding. We read here too of one of the most elemental truths of our faith. Because there is nothing, there is not a thing whatsoever that any human can do to save themselves. We are saved by grace, the unmerited gift of God. Now contrast that with this persistently held belief of many folk that God will admit them to heaven simply because they have been good people. They are wrong. They have seriously misunderstood how much God hates sin. And because of this, they are participants in a tragedy of global proportion. And it's much bigger than anything that a tsunami or an earthquake or a tornado can bring. It's being played out all around us every day. And its seriousness demands me to ask, what am I doing? What are you doing? What are we doing to tell the world that salvation is by grace through Christ? Friends, I don't know what you will take home from God's Word today, but I hope that it will at least be this challenge. For as we shall see as we continue to study this passage, we have been gifted a privileged position, but not as spectators. Let's carry on now with verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle law of separation, middle wall of separation. Now, this is a spanner. This is also a spanner. And so that I do not uh, tell a lie from the pulpit, I just want to tell you these are not the genuine spanners that I was using when I was writing the sermon because I left them at home. That was another thing I forgot this morning but they will do for the illustration. Are they different, these spanners? Is that important? Well, it depends on what you want to do with them. See? This spanner is part of a set that I bought from Supercheap some years ago, and uh, it, the, the set cost a grand sum of about $19, I think. It lives with its, its friends in that little red toolbox that you might remember from one of my sermons a while back. And uh, it has served me very faithfully, although I have managed to bend one of its friends sideways like this. It's kind of U-shaped now, which I've never managed before with any other spanner. And I suspect that the shiny spanner company of China needs to use a few less beer cans in their steel. The other spanner, however, is made by an American company called Snap-on. It is a thing of beauty, my precious. <laughs> it is an authentic spanner. Okay? It has a serial number so that Mr. Snap-on could tell me where and when that spanner was made. Now, if you think about how many spanners they make, the fact that they put a serial number on every single one is pretty impressive. It also has a lifetime guarantee. That means that if I were able to bend it like the other one or break it, I could take it back to Mr. Snap-on and he would give me a new one free of charge. Of course, Mr. Snap-on Spanner costs a great deal more than the shiny spanner. So I'm glad to say that the Snap-on Spanner, I only have one and it was given to me. I didn't have to buy it. But if I had an important or a difficult job to do, which spanner do you think I should use? The Snap-on Spanner, of course. Okay, I must use the authentic spanner. When it comes to the important matter of peace, between men, or more especially between men and God, that has eternal consequences, then only authenticity will do. Yes? 
This is why we need Christ himself as our peace, as we are now reading. And this is why Christ, who is authentically God, was the only tool possible to fulfill the Father's purposes. From this authenticity comes the confidence that the peace spoken of is genuine and will hold up to any test. It's just—it's not that transitory sort of peace that uh, is negotiated by diplomats, but it is permanent, it is completely trustworthy, and it is wholly effective. Christ himself is our peace. On Thursday morning, I was looking out the window of our dining room at a very peaceful scene. We are fortunate to live looking out across the, the river and uh, on mornings like that one, we had a very low mist and it was beautifully lit by the, the morning sun because it's kind of backlit and it was swirling this way and that on the, on the, the surface of the water. It was just the most beautiful sight. And um, at that moment, I was, I was reflecting on this matter of peace. I was thinking, this is a very peaceful scene, but, but what is peace? Can I measure it with a peaceometer? You know, what, what would the unit of peace be? I don't know. Peace seemed to be just like that mist that was moving around mysteriously. I could see it, but I couldn't do anything else with it. I couldn't tell where it was going to go. Yet Paul says that Christ is our peace. This means that something with the ability to be seen and touched is somehow embodied, sorry, that is without the ability to be seen and touched, is somehow embodied in the authentic and real person of Jesus. How can a person be something that is intangible? To answer this, we must have a look at what peace is and what Jesus is and then try to gain some understanding of how these two are united and what that might mean for us. So, to start off with, um, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody here with a first name Irene, but are there any ladies here who have the name Irene or a child Irene? No? You know somebody called Irene? Okay. Well, then you already know someone who is peace, because the Greek word for peace is Irene. Okay? It's thought to be derived from the word aero, which means to join. And indeed, it still has that that thought, that sense of bringing antagonists together. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this adequately, but it's a very exciting connection. It makes so much sense then that if Jesus is our peace, he is also our joining, our connection with God. Jesus is like the glue that binds us back together with God, that permanently repairs the broken relationship caused by sin and brings about peace. It's just so cool. It's a wordplay by the Holy Spirit. Have I explained it properly? In the Old Testament context, peace conveys the idea of completeness and well-being, of being a perfect whole. The word denotes an absence of discomfort, whether physical ailments or strife, internal or external. And it's also used, as most of us know, as an ordinary greeting. Shalom. Shalom means peace. It's a word of assurance and as a term of blessing. And how did you get this peace? Well, it was gained through observance of the law. Psalm 199, 165 reads, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. So peace in the Old Testament that was centered on the physical person and on their actions, albeit in obedience to God. 
But in the New Testament, it's actually a different thing. It's relational. Peace usually refers to the inner tranquility and poise of the Christian that has come about by trusting in God through Christ. Jesus' hold on peace was prophesied in the Old Testament writings about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The peace that Jesus Christ spoke of was a combination of hope and trust and quiet in the mind and soul, brought about not by obeying a bunch of laws, but a reconciliation with God, what we call today being saved. Such peace was proclaimed by the host of angels at Christ's birth and by Christ himself in his Sermon on the Mount and during his ministry. He also taught about this kind of peace at the Lord's Supper shortly before his death. This is the peace that Paul is writing about here. As a Christian, no matter what the circumstance may be or how even tatty you might look on the outside, you will still have perfect peace on the inside because it was bought for you and was placed there by Christ. He has joined you back to God and because of that you have the certainty of knowing the answers to those big questions. Why am I here and what will happen to me when I die? Well, I am God's creation. He has a purpose and a plan for me and he has a space for me in eternity. (laughs) Really, what do we need to worry about after that? Now we may think that this comparison of all the New Testament positions on peace is maybe interesting, but not that important. But it is very important because we are signifying a new type of relationship with God altogether. Not in addition to what we already know, but as a replacement of. And this is something because it affects the way that we will live as Christians. Of course, the Old Testament has a great deal to teach us. But we need to be careful about what we bring forward from it into the way we live today. And for that matter, we have to be careful too about anything we bring along with us from our old lives, whatever they may have been. So far we have established that the peace on offer is authentic because it is secured and embodied in none other than the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that it is a new type of peace, superior to the old one but we need to really try and get a hold of what that means practically. Paul speaks often of being in Christ. And I don't know about you, but I found that a tricky concept to to try to get a hold of. What does it mean to be in Christ? It occurs to me that it can help to think about this word being in a different way. Think about being as existing. I have my being, my existence, my reality in relation to Christ. I am being, I am physical in Christ. Do you see what I mean? I am a physical being, but what secures my existence? Well, without Christ, nothing really. I'm just a bit of matter 
slated only for burning by garbage as a consequence of my sin. Whereas in Christ, I have the sure hope of eternal being. Remember what I said earlier about the word peace having strong associations with joining. This is what we have here. Christ is our peace. We are joined to him so intimately that we are actually in him as a completely different and new arrangement to that under the law. When a Jew believes in the Lord Jesus, he loses his national identity. From then on, he is in Christ. Likewise, when a Gentile receives the Saviour, they are no longer a Gentile. Henceforth, they are in Christ. In other words, believing Jew and believing Gentile, once divided by enmity, as Paul said, are now both one in Christ. Their union with Christ necessarily unites them with one another. This important union is what we know today as the church. This is us here in this room. We all have different stories, but we are united both personally and corporately in Christ, in his peace. As we read this passage, we can see that there are four phases in Jesus' work of peace. The first phase is that of union. He has made both one. This is a continuation of Paul's thoughts in earlier verses on the problem of that two-way hostility between Jew and Gentile. Remember, the Jews were very proud of their special status as God's chosen people, and they looked down on the Gentiles, who understandably didn't take that attitude very well. They thought the Jews were arrogant, and frankly a bit weird. And this might have seemed something that was irreconcilable, but in Christ, there is a new reality where both Jew and Gentile are one, and the same thing as this new creature called a Christian. The second phase of his work is demolition. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now there's a whole lot of scholarly conjecture about exactly what that might mean, but the most common belief is that it is a reference to the wall which restricted non-Jews to the court of the Gentiles in the temple room. Okay, And it had a couple of signs on it that had a very friendly message. It said, No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death that follows. Now one could imagine that Jews would feel smug and special behind it and Christians would feel excluded and infuriated. Yet by his birth and death, Christ firmly and finally demolished that wall forcing those two groups to confront each other before and in him. I'm guessing many of us will have watched with amusement two dogs barking death and hate at each other along different sides of the fence. Okay, They run up and down and they're barking and you you can just imagine that if they actually got face to face there would just be blood and snot everywhere. Okay, But then the day comes along and the gate that is normally closed is open. And a very strange thing happens. You're rather getting busy on each other, as you'd expect, in that open space. The two will just carry on with their posturing as though the gate weren't there. Have you guys ever seen that? I've seen it a number of times. You know, in some peculiar way, they need the excuse of the barrier because they don't want the bloody reality of war. Barking at each other is just what dogs do, like Jews and Gentiles should hate each other. 
But if we take those two dogs and make them occupy the same space under firm authority, within a short while, they will be the best of friends. Christ has done the work to make that common space for all humans to occupy, no matter what their religious or ethnic background. He has removed the excuse of the law for conflict. There is the potential for harmony in him. But will we move into that space? Moreover, he hasn't just left it there because just breaking down the wall isn't enough. It's rubble or the mark left where it stood will stay as a constant reminder and irritation of what was there. In the third phase of his work, he has abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It's a work, you could say, of cleaning up. Now, to abolish means to put an end to, to completely remove. Enmity is a feeling of hostility or ill will as between enemies. So, in abolishing enmity, we could say that by removing the reason for the law, Jesus has created a perfectly clean slate for all believers, no matter what their background is, to write out the story of their lives. As a result of abolishing the hostility stirred up by the law, the Lord has been able to usher in a new creation. And I've made a little diagram to explain this, which I hope will make some sense. Okay, and I'm I'm not going to explain it any more than that. I'm just going to carry on here. He has made in himself from the two, that is from both believing Gentile and believing uh, Jew, one new man, which is the church. Through union with him, those former combatants are united with one another in this new fellowship. The church is new in the sense that it is a kind of organism that never existed before. It's important to see this. The New Testament church isn't a continuation of the Israel of the Old Testament. It is something entirely distinct and different from anything that preceded it, or for that matter that will ever follow it. And this should be apparent because of these things. It is new that a Gentile should have equal rights and privileges with a Jew. It is new that both Jews and Gentiles should lose their national identities by becoming Christians. It is new that Jews and Gentiles should be fellow members of the body of Christ. It is new that a Jew should have the hope of reigning with Christ instead of being just a subject in his kingdom. It is new that a Jew should no longer be under the law. The church is clearly a brand new creation with a distinct calling and a distinct destiny, occupying a unique place in the purposes of God. And we are part of that. But the scope of Christ's work does not stop there. He has also made peace between Jew and Gentile. And he did this by removing the cause of the hostility, by imparting a new nature, and by creating a new union. The cross, the peace of Christ, is God's answer to racial discrimination, segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and every kind of strife between men. Now, folks, we mustn't underestimate the radical nature of what Paul is saying here. Imagine that you are a Jew. You are defined by the law. It governs every aspect of who you are and what you do at all times. Gone. Gone. It's finished with. Leave it behind. 
Can any of us think about what reading this letter for the first time must have been like, the uproar that it must have caused? Even for Gentiles, the law was a defining matter because it put them on the wrong side of the fence. Now, we're mostly Kiwis in here. Let's just say that somebody came along and said, right, from this moment, you must give up all traces of your national identity. You must learn to speak properly, like me, for example. Burn all all blacks' memorabilia, memorabilia and give up pavlova. Forever. No more sheep. No way you would say, that's what I am. How will I know what to be? Where will my confidence come from? Yet this is exactly what Paul is commanding. You Jews, forget about your Jewishness. You Gentiles, forget about making fun of the Jews. Forget the barrier of the law. Stop hating one another. And mostly, quit dragging your past around with you. If you are to be a Christian, then you are now something completely new. And although your old identity may seem like the biggest thing ever to give up, think. Think about what you are gaining. The meaning of your life isn't defined by earthly labels. You were created to worship and to serve the Lord for His glory. You now have an eternal potential, not just an earthly anchor. And we are reminded of this in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The ancient philosophical discipline of alchemy was best known for its efforts to transmute base metals like lead into noble metals like gold. That would be a very handy secret to have. It uh, it reminds me of the fellow in the commercial holding the bucket up to the ATM that's spitting out free money. However, despite all manner of schemes and dangerous explosive chemical sets, no man ever succeeded in turning lead into gold. But Jesus did accomplish genuine spiritual alchemy when he made a way for leaden sinful Jews and Gentiles to be reconciled to God as new creatures saved by grace and gilded by his blood. We must recognize that this is a superior creature that transcends the old. It's much bigger. It must be to be effective because if it was just some combination of the best parts of the two old bits, it would still stand condemned by the law and have no possibility of salvation and therefore no peace. Now there is a great deal more contained in this passage, but I feel that this is where we must end. The Holy Spirit wants to end here. This is the point of the challenge for us today. The basis of what we have learned is that as Christians, in our elemental nature, we aren't at all the same anymore. We are new and we are part of something new, the church. But just knowing that isn't good enough because we are called on to act. So what is the application? The living out of what we have heard. The first question that begs to be answered is very basic. 
Are you part of this new thing yet? Do you have the peace of Christ that comes through repentance of sin and trusting in Him as your Savior? If you haven't, then I urge you, I beg you to act. Come and talk to an elder. Go and talk to a Christian that you know and trust. Make your peace with God. Secondly, where do you search for peace? It occurs to me that a great deal of what we do in our daily lives is really just a quest for that elusive state of satisfaction. We will rest when we have made our mark, we tell ourselves. So we stress and strain to climb the corporate ladder or whatever we do to make our mark, to show that we matter. But we are looking in the wrong place. Jesus himself is our peace. Now, if Jesus cared enough for us to die on a cross for us. Surely that is enough to prove that we matter. And moreover that we matter to the only one who really counts, God. There is a great deal of peace in that. But we do need to look in the right direction and set those other burdens down. Lastly, we don't need to waste time trying to impress God because we can't. We are saved by grace, not by works. And no amount of running here and there doing good and mighty things will make even one iota of difference. We don't have to buy into that tiring philosophy of having to be good people because we are good people. Made that way by the blood of Christ with a purpose as we have just read in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As much as the people at the time our passage was written may have felt a great wrench to give up their identities for the sake of Christ, we too may want to hold on to what we know. But this will just hold us back and bind us to turmoil. So I ask, will you walk out of here and live today as the new creature you are in Christ? Or will you continue to live as what you were before you came to Him? Will you fall in with God's plan? Or will you continue to face off with the world? Let us pray. Father, we have covered some very, very rich parts of your word today. And it's like, it feels like skimming a stone over the deepest part of the ocean. Father, the words that I say can never bring the understanding to our hearts that we need. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would come and work in us with those words and reveal to us the depth that is there, the richness that is there, and that we would be forever changed, Lord, as a consequence. That we would live as the new creatures that you have made us. Thank you for that newness. Thank you for the peace that comes 
from knowing that we no longer have to ask those questions with no answer. That we know, that we know, that we know that we have peace in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.